Hi, I'm Amy Goodman. Democracy Now! is funded by you, not by the weapons manufacturers when we cover war or gun violence, not by the oil, gas, coal or nuclear companies when we cover the climate catastrophe. If you believe in the power of independent media, please make your donation today of $5 or $10 or $5 or $10 a month or any amount at democracynow.org. Every dollar makes a difference, especially because generous donors are matching your contribution dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Today's civilization is once again at a crucial turning point. A real war has once again been unleashed against our homeland. Russian President Vladimir Putin accuses the West of unleashing a war against Russia during a Victory Day celebration in Moscow, marking the Soviet defeat of the Nazis in World War II. As Russia launches waves of drone strikes against Ukraine and Kyiv prepares for a major counteroffensive, the Biden administration is sending another $1.2 billion of weapons to Ukraine should the U.S. be pushing for peace talks. We'll speak to Phyllis Venice of the Institute for Policy Studies, then to Sudan, where the humanitarian crisis is worsening as fighting between rival military factions enters its 25th day. Essentially, both of them now are in a battle to the death. They conceive it as a zero-sum game. Uh, the Sudanese uh, population throughout the country is held hostage to the ambitions, the political and economic ambitions, of these two generals. And protests are continuing over the death of Jordan Neely, a longtime New York Street performer who was choked to death by a former Marine on a subway car moments after Neely screamed out he was hungry and thirsty. The medical examiner has ruled his death a homicide side, but no charges have been filed. We'll speak with an activist with the group Vocal New York and another street performer who knew Jordan from his time when he worked as a Michael Jackson impersonator. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. At least 13 people were killed in the Gaza Strip overnight as Israeli forces targeted a residential apartment building in Gaza City. Al Jazeera reports three commanders of the Palestinian Islamic Jihad were among the dead, along with their wives and children. This is a Gaza resident. People have not been able to sleep since 4 o'clock in the morning. The children woke up to the sound of explosions and they were terrified. We have children, women, patients and elderly people. This is not normal. Israel's latest attack comes just a week after Israeli airstrikes rained down on the besieged Gaza Strip following rocket launches from Gaza in response to the death of Palestinian hunger striker Hadar Adnan while in an Israeli prison. Russian President Vladimir Putin has lashed out against the U.S. and other Western powers over their support for Ukraine, saying that a real war is underway against Russia. Putin made the remarks during a brief Victory Day speech in Moscow's Red Square, commemorating the 78th anniversary of the Soviet defeat of Nazi Germany in World War II. Today's civilization is once again at a crucial turning point. 
A real war has once again been unleashed against our homeland, but we have fought back against international terrorism. Overnight air raid sirens sounded across two-thirds of Ukraine as Russia launched more than a dozen missile attacks on Kyiv and other cities. Ukraine's government says at least four people were killed Monday. The latest attacks came as European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen arrived in Kyiv for talks with the Ukrainian president. Meanwhile, the Biden administration's announcing an additional $1.2 billion in military aid to Ukraine today for air defense systems and drones. We'll speak with Phyllis Bennis of the Institute for Policy Studies. In Sudan, fighting continues to rage in Khartoum as representatives for the national military and the paramilitary rapid support forces hold talk in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. On Monday, Sudan's military leader, General Abdel Fattah al-Buran, ruled out any peace settlement unless both warring parties agree to a lasting ceasefire. At least 700 people have been killed, while over 100,000 people have fled Sudan since fighting broke out three weeks ago. We'll go to Sudan later in the broadcast. In Pakistan, former Prime Minister Imran Khan has been arrested in the capital Islamabad during a court appearance where he faces corruption charges. Security forces dragged Khan out of court and into a police vehicle. Allies denounced his arrest as an abduction. Khan was removed from the office by parliament in April of last year. In recent months, hundreds of his supporters blocked repeated attempts by Pakistani authorities to take Khan into custody. He's denied the charges against him. In Serbia, tens of thousands of people joined protests against gun violence in the capital, Belgrade, Monday, demanding top government officials resign in the wake of the two mass shootings last week. Seventeen people were killed in the two attacks, including eight school children. This is protester Slobodan Selkulic. It is tragic that so many kids killed by their peers were buried in a short period of time. This is a low point. We are already used to what happens in Texas, but there weapons are openly purchased. And here, where do they get the firearms? It is a disaster. In Texas, public anger is growing over the lack of information being shared by investigators as they piece together details about the 33-year-old gunman who killed eight people and wounded seven others during a mass shooting in the Dallas suburb of Allen Saturday. In social media posts, the gunman revealed he had a swastika and an SS symbol tattooed on his body. He frequently espoused racist views, including praise for Adolf Hitler and other mass killers. In 2008, the gunman joined the U.S. Army but was terminated three months later for unspecified mental health issues. Despite that, the gunman never faced a background check before legally purchasing firearms from private sellers in Texas, including the AR-15 assault rifle used in the attack. On Monday, more victims of the massacre were identified. They include Daniela and Sofia Mendoza, two elementary school-age sisters whose mother was shot and remains in critical condition, and Kyosung and Cindy Cho, a Korean-American couple who were killed along with their three-year-old son, James, their six-year-old son, William is in the hospital. According to the Gun Violence Archive, there have already been 202 mass shootings in the United States this year, on average more than one mass shooting per day. Elsewhere in Texas, authorities have charged the driver of the SUV who rammed into a crowd of migrants outside a shelter in the border city of Brownsville on Sunday, killing eight people and wounding 10 others. Most of the victims were Venezuelan asylum seekers who'd spent the night at the shelter and were waiting to board a bus. This is Brownsville Police Chief Felix Salsada. 
Investigation also revealed that the driver of the vehicle, later identified as George Alvarez, November 9th, 1988, had attempted to flee the scene after impact, but was held down by several individuals on scene. He has been formally charged and arraigned with eight counts of manslaughter, 10 counts of aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. Police say Alvarez had a long history of violent crimes, including aggravated assault with a deadly weapon. They're investigating eyewitness accounts that he shouted anti-immigrant insults at his victims during Sunday's assault. Venezuela's government has called for an investigation to determine if the attack was motivated by hate. In related news, Texas Republican Governor Greg Abbott has deployed another 450 National Guard soldiers to the southern border with Mexico as the Biden administration prepares to lift the Trump-era Title 42 pandemic policy Thursday. Abbott said the new units targeting asylum seekers will be stationed in the borderlands of El Paso and the Rio Grande Valley. The Texas National Guard is loading Black Hawk helicopters and C-130s deploying specially trained National Guard members for the Texas Tactical Border Force. They will be deployed to hot spots along the border to intercept, to repel, and to turn back migrants who are trying to enter Texas illegally. Meanwhile, in California, dozens of asylum seekers have been stranded at the southern border near San Diego, as many hope to be allowed into the United States after the lifting of Title 42, which for three years has been used to expel almost three million migrants at the border without due process. Humanitarian aid volunteers brought food and water as asylum seekers had not eaten for days. We have been meeting with people who've been here up to seven days. There is a very young baby here that's been here. I know was here yesterday. Um, there are a number of young children. Um, they are being provided with minimal water, insufficient water. They've not been given food today and very little food yesterday. Here in New York, jurors have begun deliberations in Donald Trump's rape and defamation civil trial brought by writer E. Jean Carroll. During closing arguments Monday, Carroll's attorney described Trump as a habitual liar and sex abuser who ruined Carroll's reputation after she accused him of raping her in a department store dressing room in the 1990s. Eleven witnesses testified for the plaintiff, including two other women, who said Trump also sexually assaulted them. Trump had promised to disprove Carroll's allegations in court, but decided to not attend the trial. A new report finds South Carolina Democratic Congressmember Jim Clyburn secretly worked with Republicans during the 2020 redistricting process on a plan that diluted black voting strength and harmed Democrats' chances of gaining seats in Congress. That's according to ProPublica which reports Clyburn made the deal in exchange for a redrawn map of South Carolina's 6th congressional district that ensured he could easily win re-election. A spokesperson denied the report that Clyburn facilitated Republican gerrymandering. Until January, Clyburn served as House Majority Whip, the third-ranking House Democrat. His opposition to Bernie Sanders' candidacy helped propel Joe Biden to victory in 2020 presidential primary. And here in New York, 11 people were arrested at a protest Monday night demanding justice for Jordan Neely, a 30-year-old unhoused black man who was choked to death on a subway car last week by another passenger. Jordan Neely was crying out that he was hungry when he was fatally attacked on the train by a 24-year former Marine named 
Daniel Penny. Penny was interviewed by police detectives, but was released, not arrested. Sunday night's protest follows a similar demonstration Saturday when police arrested 13 people at a sit-in protesting protest, demanding the Penny face charges. They were on the subway tracks. We'll have more on this story later in the broadcast. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Russian President Vladimir Putin has accused the West of unleashing a war against Russia during a Victory Day celebration in Moscow, marking the Soviet defeat of the Nazis 78 years ago. Putin's remarks came over 14 months after Russia invaded Ukraine. In recent days, Russia's stepped-up attacks on Ukraine launching waves of drone and missile attacks targeting Kyiv and other areas. Putin spoke in Moscow's Red Square earlier today. Today, civilization is once again at a crucial turning point. A real war has once again been unleashed against our homeland. But we have fought back against international terrorism. We will also protect the people of the Donbass and ensure our security. For us, for Russia, there are no unfriendly hostile nations, either in the West or the East. As with the absolute majority of people on the planet, we want to see the future peaceful, free, and stable. We believe that any ideology of supremacy is disgusting, evil, and deadly in its nature. The Western globalist elites, however, still preach about their exceptionalism. They are pitting people against each other and dividing society, provoking bloody conflicts and coups, sowing hatred, Russophobia, aggressive nationalism, destroying the traditional family values that make people people. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has also marked the anniversary of the surrender of Nazi Germany in World War II. On Monday, Zelensky compared Putin's Russia to Nazi Germany. Unfortunately, evil has returned. Just as evil rushed to our cities and villages then, it is doing so now. Evil killed our people then, so it does now. Although now the aggressor is different. The goal is the same, enslavement or destruction. And just like in the Second World War, we are not alone against evil. We fight against him together in the same way, with the entire free world, with the states and peoples who created a joint victory at that time. We fought then and we fight now so that no one ever again enslaves other peoples and destroys other countries. And the old evil that modern Russia is bringing back will be defeated, just as Nazism was defeated. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's remarks come as Ukraine is preparing to launch a major counteroffensive, which has forced Moscow to issue evacuation orders for thousands of residents in some areas occupied by Russian troops. Meanwhile, the Biden administration is announcing today a new $1.2 billion military aid package for Ukraine. To talk more about the war in Ukraine, we're joined by Phyllis Bennis, a fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. Phyllis, welcome back to Democracy Now! So let's start there. As this counteroffensive begins by Ukraine and Russia rains down strikes on Ukraine, the U.S. is announcing today another $1.2 billion in military aid to Ukraine. Where do you see this going? Good morning, Amy. I'm afraid that what we're looking at is already uh, collapsed into a war of attrition. The analogies to World War II 
are dangerous on a number of levels, but one of the levels is that this is not a war that's going to end like World War II with the surrender of one side or another. I think there is widespread understanding that this is not a war that's going to be won militarily. The question is, how long is it going to be prolonged? How many more Ukrainian civilians and, and also Russian, uh, Russian uh, soldiers that have been forced into the military are going to be killed? How much more Ukrainian territory is going to be destroyed? How much more of a global set of consequences, including the environmental consequences, the economic crisis, and the famine that is, is attacking large parts of the global south because of the consequences of this war. All of that and the potential threat of an escalation to a nuclear exchange, the most dangerous and the most deadly uh, possibility that could come from this. So all of that is possible. And I think that looking at the question of the new looming a uh, Ukrainian offensive. There's been talk also of a Russian offensive in the spring, although that isn't as, as clear as the, the possibility of a, of a Ukrainian offensive. The real issue is, for how long is this war going to end? And what should be the position of our movements, movements of progressives, of anti-war forces, of anti-empire forces, those who support Ukraine's right of self-determination, and yet see the consequences of this war going forward, if our goal, as I think it should be, is to end the war, not to extend it indefinitely, as long as it takes, as President Biden describes it, by providing all the weapons that Ukraine might ask for, all of the weapons of any sort between the U.S. and its allies, this is going to make things worse and not better. It's going to extend the war and not lead towards a way of ending the war, which I think has to be our goal. What nations do you believe could play a role in negotiations? I think first there has to be a coming together of a number of nations to call for a ceasefire. A ceasefire is the immediate demand. It won't lead to justice by itself. But if the end of the shooting can happen, if the end of the bombing can happen, if people are no longer being killed— there is a much better chance that serious negotiations could get underway. I think there are a number of countries that could play a role in a, in a positive way. The, the Chinese 12-point program that was submitted some time ago, I think by itself is not sufficient. It didn't, for example, say that the Russian troops must be withdrawn. It didn't acknowledge the illegality of the Russian invasion. That's a serious problem. But it did include a number of components, which even the Ukrainian leadership has said they could accept. At the level of who's moving around the world trying to put forward uh, a new call for negotiations, the initiative taken by Brazilian President Lula, I think, is one of the most important, partnered potentially with the South African president, President Ramaphosa and President Lula together, would be a very formidable team. Uh, they both have relations with both Russia and Ukraine. They both are part of the BRICS alliance, but they're the only ones of the BRICS who are not either fighting or providing weapons or trying to provide weapons to one or both sides. So they're in a particularly uh, useful position in terms of being able to negotiate, being able to engage with both sides, to act as an interlocutor. We have not yet heard that there's a uh, a team in formation, if you will, between Lula and Ramaphosa.
But I think uh, President Lula, in particular, has been very visible in moving around the world calling for this. He's someone with a long history of engagement on international issues beyond Brazil's own borders. And South Africa has made very clear their both opposition to the, uh, the, the Russian invasion, but refusing to accept the U.S.-led calls for sanctions and other punishments that are known to not work to end wars. So I think there is a great potential there for those two leaders uh, to play to play a major role. Would Ukraine accept South Africa, which hasn't condemned Russia's invasion of Ukraine, as it is conducting naval exercises with the Russian and Chinese navies in the Indian Ocean? And would they accept Brazil, um, which uh, cl claim that the U.S. is stimulating the fighting? And would you agree with that? Um, and said that both Ukraine and Russia had decided to go to war. I think that there's no question that the U.S. provision of military equipment, of arms, of tanks, of, of support in, of all kinds, and U.S. allies providing the rest, potentially even including long-range missiles we're hearing today, uh, something the U.S. has refused to do, but now Britain is talking about that as a possibility. There's no question that that has extended the war. I think that there is a mistaking a mistaken view out there that says that uh, South Africa has never condemned the war. There has been a criticism of the war. What South Africa has not been prepared to do is vote for the condemnations in the in the Security Council that came along with calls for uh, specific sanctions, etc., against Russia, which they were not prepared to do. I think that there is a good chance that the uh, the the uh, Ukrainian leadership would accept almost any serious negotiations at this point. One of the issues is, will their key military backers, particularly the United States, pull back from their earlier positions of telling the Ukrainians, essentially, we don't want a ceasefire yet. We're not pushing you to negotiate. There was a period last April, more than a year ago, in April of, tw of 2022, when there were negotiations that were seemed to be pending. There were discussions about talks, talks about talks, if you will. And at that point, uh, with U.S. Uh, involvement, the then prime minister of the U.K., Boris Johnson, went to Kiev to meet with, uh, with, with Zelensky, with President Zelensky. And all the reports indicated that his message was, don't start negotiating yet. We will provide you with whatever you need. Keep the fight. Keep the fight going. And that was indeed what the Ukrainians chose to do. That has not made it better in terms of the potential for future negotiations. And, of course, we are also facing a serious challenge with our movement in uh, the, the differences between those who support one set of legitimate rights of Ukraine— as the most important aspects, and others who support other rights of Ukraine and the world as the more important. And there's been such tension within that movement that it's been almost impossible to build a unified effort to end this war. So we're facing a very challenging moment when the urgency for a ceasefire, the urgency for moving towards negotiations is crucial. And yet there's problems of, of a stall in our movement level. There's a stall at the diplomatic level. The only thing that's not being stalled is sending more weapons. 
And I think that's a very serious problem, because what we're looking at, Amy, one of the challenges that we face is this enormous contradiction of this period of history, where it's not only complicated because this is no longer the Cold War, where there was U.S. imperialism attacking countries, undermining the self-determination of countries around the world, and much of the rest of the world mobilized against that, and political movements mobilized on the same side, not necessarily agreeing with what the Soviet Union at that time was doing or saying, or what China at that time was doing or saying, but clear in our opposition to what the U.S. was doing around the world. What we're seeing now is that illegitimate actions, illegal actions, violations of international law are coming not only from the U.S. In this case, they're coming from, uh, from, from Russia as well. We also have to understand, I think, that there are two separate wars being waged in Ukraine, one of which has been waged for decades now, led by the United States and NATO, as a geopolitical war against Russian influence in the post-Cold War era with the collapse of the Soviet Union. That included things like the movement of, uh, the, of NATO into countries much closer to Russia, despite promises not to do so. It includes the, the positioning of weapons across Europe, including strategic weapons and even nuclear weapons in parts of Europe. So all of that has been one kind of geopolitical war. As of last year, and beginning in some ways in 2014 with the Russian invasion and occupation of Crimea, you have a Russian-led war on the ground. And it's that ground war right now that so urgently needs to be stopped, because that's where we're seeing the deaths of just too many people, too many Ukrainian civilians, elders and children, babies, everyone is at risk of being killed or injured in this war. So there's a desperate, urgent need to stop that war. But we can't put aside the fact that there's been this other geopolitical war led by the United States and NATO, which is still going on. So we can't simply wish that away and say, by concentrating on the ground war, which I believe needs to be our priority, a war in which Russia was clearly the aggressor, we need to focus on that. But keeping in mind the other part of this very complicated set of wars that are underway. So I think the call for an immediate ceasefire and the call for serious negotiations that first will lead to a peace with justice in the medium and long term after an immediate ceasefire, we can't afford, I'm afraid, to say we can put off a ceasefire until a fully realized peace with justice is on the way. And what do you say, because Phyllis? What, that leaves what do you say, Phyllis, to those who say a ceasefire serves Russia because they get to keep their land that they have occupied from Donbass to Crimea? A, cease, a ceasefire is only step one. A ceasefire is only the prelude to negotiations, which should lead to Russian troops being pulled out. That's a goal. But in almost every case, there are exceptions in history. The U.S negotiated with Vietnam for five years, while the worst of the fighting continued between 1968 and 1973. But that's a rarity in history. In almost every situation, serious negotiations don't take place until there's a ceasefire. We're not talking about Russia being allowed somehow to keep territory it has, it has claimed. That's a clear violation of international law in a whole host of ways. But it's a step. It's a necessary step. We can't leave out 
that it's only step one, that the next step has to be moving towards serious negotiations. There also need to be separate negotiations in which the United States, first of all, has no right to tell the Ukrainians what they should do in the negotiations. But as its main supplier of arms, of money, of all kinds of support, it has, in my view, not only the right but the obligation to push Ukraine towards negotiations, as at the same time that the world is pushing the Russians towards negotiations. And Phyllis, there um, needs to on, be the issue, on the issue of debate within countries, you travel around the world. How does that debate um, in Europe? Do you see it more robust and open than in the United States? You work with many Congress members. The issue of negotiation ceasefire is rarely publicly raised here, uh, unless we're talking about protesters on the ground getting arrested. I think it's a very complicated question. I have not been traveling around since COVID, although that's about to change. But in my talk by, by phone and by Skype with, with colleagues in anti-war forces and progressive people of all kinds across Europe and elsewhere, there is debate and discussion. But I think that the levels of support for arming Ukraine in an almost unlimited way is as great or greater across Europe than it is here. There is an active and vibrant peace mobilization in Europe. And yet the public polls indicate great support for further arming, further weapons being sent, the expansion of NATO in the new countries of, that are moving into NATO, Finland and Sweden, where the populations for decades prided themselves on their non-alignment with war-making forces around the world, including the United States. In that context, we're now seeing a complete reversal, where the government decisions to, to join NATO in both Finland and Sweden, which is now in process, has enormously high levels of public support. So I think that we're in a similar situation here, where there is a great deal of support for Ukraine, a level of support that I think is appropriate in terms of supporting a population that has been attacked uh, and occupied by an outside aggressive force, that being Russia. But at the same time, we're, we're seeing we're not seeing a level that same level of support for sending the amount of money. It's over sixty six billion dollars just on the military side so far. And it's about to be $67 billion, another $50 billion or so in economic aid. There's a lot of opposition to that in this country. And I think that we have to be uh, willing to, to challenge those who are saying that somehow a permanent provision of a, of, a, of a weapons pipeline is not going to end this war. We have to be very clear of the danger. This war threatens the possibility of a nuclear escalation in a way that no war, no situation since the Cuban Missile Crisis threatened. Phyllis. It was not true in Iraq, Afghanistan, or the others. It is a threat here. And for that reason, the global consequences and the regional consequences of militarization and famine and the environmental cost, all of that, the top of that pyramid of costs is the nuclear threat. And that's why we need 
to end this war as rapidly as possible. Phyllis, before you go, I want to ask you about Gaza. Overnight, Israel launched surprise airstrikes in Gaza, targeting three commanders of the Islamic Jihad assassinated in their homes. The attacks killed a total of 13 people, including the wives and children of the commanders. The Israeli attack broke a ceasefire that had been reached last week after a spike in violence following the death of the Palestinian prisoner Hada Adnan in Israeli custody, who'd been on hunger strike for 87 days. Days. In this last minute we have, can you comment on what's been happening? This is a horrific example, once again, of Israel in a long history, not only since this new extraordinarily far, far extremist right-wing government has taken power. This has been the case before in the willingness to attack Gaza, to attack civilians. And it, this was an attack on a residential apartment building. It was no surprise in the middle of the night that children were among the dead, that people were killed in their beds. And the fact that three of them are alleged to have been commanders of the Islamic Jihad organization does not give Israel the right to carry out this kind of extrajudicial killing, this kind of assault, this kind of murder by bomb, when there is knowledge that there will be civilian casualties. There is a desperate need to go back, first of all, to, this, to the ceasefire. Israel's violation of it was clear and unequivocal. This was a complete violation of international law, international human rights law, and international humanitarian law. As the occupying power, Israel has the obligation to protect the civilian population. That's across the board. It doesn't matter what other forces are negotiating with it, whether there are negotiations underway or not. That is Israel's obligation as the occupying power. Instead, we're seeing the expansion of an apartheid regime and one which is prepared to use violence at extraordinary levels uh, without a moment's hesitation. And oh. it's a complete violation, and it sh the U.S. should stop its military support as a result. Phyllis Bennis, we thank you so much for being with us, author and fellow at the Institute for Policy Studies. When we come back, we go to Sudan, where the humanitarian crisis is worsening as fighting between the rival military factions enters its 25th day. Stay with us.
Nothing Burns Like the Cold by Snow Allegra, featuring Vince Staples. This is Democracy Now! I'm Amy Goodman. We turn now to Sudan, where fighting between rival military factions continues for a 25th day. On Monday, Sudan's military leader ruled out any peace settlement unless both warring parties agree to a lasting ceasefire. Representatives for the National Military and the Paramilitary Rapid Support Forces have been holding talks in Jeddah, Saudi Arabia. At least 700 people have been killed over a hundred thousand people have fled Sudan since the fighting broke out. This is a Khartoum resident who spoke to reporters from the border town of Wadi Hawa. I need to take my insulin. Today is the third day that I did not take insulin. I have no money to buy insulin. I left all my money and my job in Khartoum. After the attacks, I left everything behind and just came here. I don't own anything here, assuming that I would find a way to leave directly. There was nothing there that made me stay or wait. As soon as the attacks happened, I left everything behind. And this is Abdullah Osama, another Khartoum resident who fled the city. We would wake up every morning to the sounds of bullets and missiles. We would walk and find corpses in the streets. Streets were closed. Hospitals were closed. Everything was closed. There were electricity and water cuts. We're joined now by two guests. Khaled Mustafa Medani is an associate professor of political science and Islamic studies, chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University in Montreal. He's from Sudan. And joining us from Khartoum is the Sudanese activist Maureen Al-Neil. Uh, we'd hoped to go to Maureen in uh, in Khartoum first, um, but uh, we are having trouble with her line. There is so much trouble with power and electricity um, uh, in this war-torn nation right now. Um, Professor Medani, let's begin with you. Um, talk about what's happening right now. You have negotiations going on in Saudi Arabia, yet the forces on the ground, 100,000 people have fled the country, 700 are dead at least. Yeah, absolutely. First of all, thank you for having me on your show again. Um, the crisis is incredibly severe and has increased in the course of the last uh, four weeks or so. And not only is it about uh, food insecurity at the moment, but um, famine uh, potentially in the capital of Khartoum. And so in addition to the absence of electricity and clean drinking water, uh, the lack of access to, to food, there is an uh, unbelievable amount of uh, loot of uh, of stores, of people's homes, um, the looting of factories, food factories. So the infrastructure of this uh, city is, is particularly uh, destroyed, and that's one of the, the biggest uh, aspects of this humanitarian crisis, which is a really big problem. In addition to that, those uh, volunteers, a youth activist, uh, I think Ms. Uh, Neil will uh, talk about a little bit more, are being actually threatened by both the paramilitary forces and the uh, national army. In other words, those young people and networks in civil society that are trying to volunteer to actually provide medicine and food and supplies, utilizing social media and charitable work, so to speak, um, are the very people who are being detained and being intimidated and threatened. The Sudanese Doctors' Union, which is doing all it, it can to provide medicine and provide health care and health services in the context of 70% of, uh, of the hospitals in, in Khartoum that have been bombed, have also been threatened. And so there is a political aspect to it, a political crisis to it, but the humanitarian
humanitarian crisis is not only deep, it's now expanded throughout the country. Um, the man you interviewed in Wadi Halfa in the north is just one of uh, hundreds of thousands who are stuck at the border. It's not just about uh, being stuck at the border, but the lack of access to food, medicine, even if you do have the finances, which, uh, of course, most residents in Khartoum, for example, do not, the prices have quadrupled over the last uh, weeks. And so uh, the humanitarian crisis is really problematic. And the absence of, uh, of the UN, uh, you know, kind of refugee agencies um, is uh, really stark in the capital. There is some supplies that are coming from the World Food Program, but the absence and the lack of presence of, uh, of the United Nations agency in the context of this complex humanitarian emergency uh, is extremely disappointing. Professor, um, let me so go I to Maureen O'Neill. We, we just got Maureen O'Neill uh, back on. And while we're able to speak with her, Maureen, um, I'm so glad we could get in touch with you. I've been worried since we last spoke to you, not able to reach you. Um, this has been going on now, what, we're in the 25th day. Uh, can you describe what you're seeing on the ground and the level of threat to civilians and if you see any possibility of these warring commanders um, uh, stopping the fighting. The humanitarian situation, Amy, in Khartoum has only gotten worse since we last spoke. So we're still suffering from uh, uh, shortages in food supply, um, power cuts. Uh, we have some areas in Khartoum that have had no electricity for over a week now, um, water cuts. Um, and it's still very difficult and not safe to move around, which means many people are not able to go to hospitals or other um, uh, centers that are providing medical care. Um, and as uh, has been said, 70 percent of medical services are down currently. And although um, the numbers are reporting that over 100,000 have fled uh, to neighboring countries and 300,000 um, have been internally displaced, However, we have to remember that these are numbers are only small percentages and many have remained within Khartoum. Um, only those who can afford it, which are actually a small percentage of people, have left Khartoum. So now the remainder of the people who are here um, are people who have not been able to leave for financial reasons or other reasons. Um, they are the people who have less access to international media, to even just internet or, or, or uh, access to journalists or, or um, being able to get their story out there, basically. Um, this is turning Khartoum into another uh, war uh, s similar to the ones that have been raised by the Sudanese government on its people before. Um, so it's becoming a, a, another ignorable war. Um, um, well, when you ha have all the... the uh, middle class and the upper middle class and all the foreigners have, have left Khartoum. Uh, this is what uh, Khartoum residents are now facing. Um, it's, it's this fear that um, we are now going to be forgotten in this situation. And how do you think people can be most helped by other African nations? I mean, talk about what's happening on the borders and also by the entire international community. Uh, talk about the warring commanders, what they're demanding um, and where the civilians fit into this picture. Mm -hmm. Both parties, the Rapid Support Forces and the Sudanese Armed Forces, do not seem to be genuine about their efforts to negotiate. Um, only yesterday, General Abdel Fattah Burhan has said to one media outlet uh, that uh, a peaceful solution is the only way to end the crisis. Um, and uh, has said in um, a statement by the, the Sudanese Armed Forces that uh, they are not willing to consider any uh, temporary ceasefire. 
um, which implies that they're they're looking for a victory for the Sudanese armed forces. Um, so it seems like both parties are not serious about um, their their interest in creating a temporary ceasefire or maybe even safe passages, so that that the livelihood and the well-being of the people who are in these conflict areas um, can be um, taken care of uh, while the conflict continues. It doesn't seem to be a priority for both parties. Uh, so I think the main effort that can be helpful to the residents of Sudan right now is to support the civilian efforts that are uh, that have been providing aid for people in Khartoum and in other um, uh, conflict-affected areas. It's only been popular efforts that have uh, actually made an impact on the ground. Um, any um, uh, NGOs, whether international or national, have not been able to reach because of the lack of safety. So it's the people who are also stuck in, stuck in the conflict that have been able to provide things like um, ambulances and uh, makeshift hospitals and even just um, um, getting food supplies and, and life-saving medication from one place to another. Um, and during these trips, uh, for example, only a few days ago, um, uh, members of resistance committees that were running an ambulance were arrested by the Sudanese armed forces. Um, so we're, we're, we're having to just face these um, um, risks um, just to be able to provide basic uh, life needs. And let me ask Khalid Mustafa Madani, uh, the question of whether this is becoming a kind of proxy war. Um, you have the reports that the Wagner Group has been supplying Sudan's rapid su uh, support forces with missiles, and the Washington Post reporting Hamedi has close ties with Russia, um, whose mercenary Wagner Group reportedly supports his gold mining interests, while Berhan is backed by neighboring Egypt and the Arab world's most popular nation. Professor Madani. Yeah, yes, um, absolutely. Um, um, absolutely. I think, uh, quite frankly, uh, the reason that the United States and Saudi Arabia, one of the main reasons that they're holding these what they call pre-negotiation talks is, number one, uh, to feel out the two, two generals uh, following the executive order that President Biden implemented in terms of, uh, of the threat of sanctions or sanctioning these generals. But another had to do when he stated in, in himself, and that is the spillover effect uh, and the fact that um, other actors are going to use uh, different uh, domestic groups, in particular these two generals as, as proxy actors. It's widely acknowledged that uh, the Wagner Group, of course, has interest in gold. Uh, Russia has long had an interest in actually finding a base or establishing a, a base in the port of Sudan. And the United Arab Emirates, of course, is, uh, has historically been very supportive financially and politically uh, of Hemeti and Egypt of Burhan. Those, I think, are really important aspects of why these negotiations are taking place. I think there's absolutely Absolutely no question uh, that uh, there is a great possibility of greater interference. And I think that's one of the reasons these talks are being held, the recognition that uh, actors, particularly those unfriendly to uh, the United States and, uh, and Saudi Arabia, will actually intervene and complicate the situation, of course, and having a spillover effect throughout the region, which I think is uh, extremely important. I do think, if, I, if you don't mind me saying, that there's a, a central problem with the negotiations. Number one, um, it is supposed to 
to provide for humanitarian corridors after a ceasefire. Uh, but um, civil society and those, as uh, Ms. Anil just mentioned, who are actually doing the humanitarian work are completely excluded from these negotiations. And the danger here is to return to the previous history where you basically have a compromise uh, between two generals that basically reestablishes the very kind of tenuous balance of power that they had in the past. And most centrally and importantly, the repeated mistake, and I can't emphasize this enough, the repeated mistakes of these negotiations to, include, to exclude civil society actors, including um, non-governmental organizations and the resistance committees, uh, the trade unions, the Sudan doctors' unions, the very people who would be able to secure the implementation not only of a ceasefire in terms of service delivery, but also to make a potential negotiation uh, durable in the future. My opinion is that actually betting on uh, Hemeti and uh, Burhan uh, with respect to the international actors as sources of stability is completely incorrect. They have proven that they are not able to administer this country. And the only solution, and this is why the role of civil society here is so important in Sudan, the only solution as civil society actors, and many analysts, by the way, have insisted upon in the case of Sudan that the only path towards stability is the establishment of a civilian democracy. That is not on the table, and Saudi Arabia and the United States have, have yet to actually put that on the table, including and also uh, adding more stakeholders, more buy-ins into these negotiations. So once again, the same mistakes are being replayed. And this is, I think, what we really need to emphasize at this moment. Khalid Mustafa Madani, a professor of political science and Islamic studies, chair of the African Studies Program at McGill University, uh, Sudanese. Um, also, congratulations on getting your mother out um, to safety. Uh, Maureen Al-Neil, all the very best to you. Sudanese activist who remains in Khartoum, as so many others do. We thank you both for being with us. Next up, protests continue after the death of Jordan Neely, longtime subway performer who'd become un housed and was choked to death by a former Marine in a subway car last week. Stay with us. Lorenzo Larocque performing in New York City subways. He's one of our next guests. I am Amy Goodman. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. Here in New York, 11 people were arrested at a protest Monday night demanding justice for Jordan Neely, 30-year-old unhoused black man choked to death on a subway car last week by another passenger. Jordan Neely was crying out that he was hungry and thirsty when he was fatally attacked on the train by a 24-year-old former Marine named Daniel Penny. Penny was interviewed by police detectives, but 
was released. He has not been arrested. Monday night's protest follows a similar demonstration Saturday when police arrested 13 people at a protest where they went onto the subway tracks and demanded Penny face charges. This is Juan Alberto Vasquez, an independent journalist who was in the subway car and filmed the fatal chokehold. He's speaking to NBC News. The man got on the subway car and began to say a somewhat aggressive speech, saying that he was hungry, he was thirsty, and he didn't care about anything. He didn't care about going to jail, that he didn't care that he gets a big life sentence, and it doesn't matter if he died. If there was fear, the people who were bluish or who were there, where he separated everything, moved from their place. I stayed sitting in my place because it was a little further away. But obviously, those moments, well, one thinks fear, one thinks he may be armed. The law firm representing Daniel Penny released a statement Friday expressing, quote, condolences to those close to Mr. Neely and adding, quote, Mr. Neely had a documented history of violent and erratic behavior, the apparent result of ongoing and untreated mental illness. When Mr. Neely began aggressively threatening Daniel Penny and the other passengers, Daniel, with the help of others, acted to protect themselves until help arrived. Daniel never intended to harm Mr. Neely and could not have foreseen the, his untimely death, the law firm said. Representatives for Jordan Neely's family responded Monday, calling the statement, quote, not an apology nor an expression of regret. It's a character assassination. They continued, quote, the truth is he knew nothing about Jordan's history when he intentionally wrapped his arms around Jordan's neck and squeezed and kept squeezing. He never attempted to help him at all. In short, his actions on the train and now his words show why he needs to be in prison, the family of Jordan Neely said. The killing of Jordan Neely comes as New York is facing a growing population of unhoused people who lack support they need, with many facing mental health crises. Officials say Jordan Neely had been arrested more than 40 times, including for multiple assaults, was on a list of unhoused people identified by aid workers as having dire needs. Before he fell on hard times, Jordan was well known to New Yorkers and tourists as a talented Michael Jackson impersonator who made a living in Times Square and on New York subways. For more, we're joined by two guests. Juwanza Williams is director of organizing at Vocal New York and Lorenzo Larocque, who knew Jordan Neely for 20 years when they were both buskers in the New York City subway system. This is him playing his custom made five string plexiglass electric violin viola. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Lorenzo, I want to begin with you. That was you playing the violin. You knew Jordan for 20 years as a fellow busker. Talk about him, as many New Yorkers and tourists knew him for years, this Michael Jackson impersonator, a member of the community of artists that we so often um, see in the subways. Well, I worked with Jordan um, over a period of—I played um, down in the subways for 30 years. I worked with Jordan for about 20. And what we did was, he would do the noon to 3 o'clock shift. I'd get there around 2 for my 3 to 6 o'clock sh shift. And I could—you know, I spent years watching this man, who was definitely a professional artist. Um, he had a mastery of how— he could work a crowd. If you could stop traffic in New York City with your talents, you're doing something positive. 
he was the most passive, beautifully a gentleman. And, and, you know, this is consistently. I've never seen him aggressive. I've never seen him have a problem with the public. And what Jordan did, um, he gave freely to the city of New York and brought nothing but joy to this town for decades. And, you know, a misconception of street performers, we're out there giving it away. It's free. If you want to donate, that's fine. But, you know, we're doing our civic duty out there, keeping the peace. Just we keep the peace better than cops in the sense that in the 20 years that I've been out there and Jordan doing his thing, there was never any problem. Uh, music calms the savage beast. Well, it also calms down New York City commuters. You know, um, we Jordan was God. How can I put it? Not only the consummate professional. But he was an he was Michael Jackson. You know, people can't see Michael in Times Square. He's a icon, iconic figure. But Jordan embodied that persona. Lorenzo, when you saw the video, which went viral, of oh. uh, Daniel Perry um, choking him to death, there were also two other passengers who were holding him down. And when people tried to help, they um, pushed them away. Your response? Um, to- I was witnessing a murder. That's what I said. It was, it was painful and crushing. You know, here was a great artist being murdered in front of my eyes. And the fact that this gentleman's just walking the streets, it's a, it's a tragedy. Juwanza Williams, there have been many people arrested in the last few days demanding the arrest of Penny, the uh, ex-Marine who put him in a chokehold until he died. He hasn't been arrested. Many others have. Um, can you respond to the video, what you understand happened and what you're calling for now? Yeah, thanks again for having me, Amy. I deeply appreciate it. And, and as Lorenzo was saying, you know, I'm thinking a lot about the humanity of black people and what we're experiencing across these racist, violent United States. I'm not think that what what happened is a catastrophe. And I think that we should honor the, the demands of the Neely family and have this person arrested. But really, I want to talk about, you know, one, for black people to avoid continue watching the kinds of videos that create psychic harm for all of us, because these things affect our bodies and our mentalities. So I've avoided watching that video because I don't need to see another black person lynched again in this country. Um, And so I avoided that video and I don't want to watch that. So I can't speak to it specifically. But what I can say is that what has happened to Jordan Neely is very reminds us that it's not Unfortunately, that his story is that unique. The fact is that over the, since, since 2022, over 815 people experiencing homelessness in New York have died in public spaces. This is a structural phenomena. And I, I have to say that we have to hold also not just the murderer accountable. We have to hold Mayor Eric Adams and Governor Kathy Hochul for their continued right wing, hyper conservative, fear mongering politics and politicking about our lives. Like the fact that they flooded our subways with police to respond to people experiencing homelessness in the subway. And yet these same police officers were nowhere to be found when it was time to protect Jordan Neely from the violence of a white man, former Marine, strangling him to death. So what we need to see is not a mobilization of violence, but a mobilization of care in our subways. And our homelessness union at Vocal New York has been calling for that for multiple years. And so for me, I think that the state needs to do what it needs to do, what it always does, and, you know, use its carceral system to bring some
some kind of justice to this family, but I don't believe in the carceral system, so I have to say, we want to build a loving and caring infrastructure in our city, so that means that Mayor Eric Adams, right now in the middle of this budget negotiation, needs to put our billions of dollars where they need to be in support of housing, in in, you know, wraparound services, safe haven beds. We need to see people rapidly rehouse out of shelters into secure housing. And sometimes that means housing vouchers, uh, et cetera. And there's so many different things that need to happen. And I think that, um, you know, Governor Hochul, you know, just passed a state budget that didn't pass Daniel's law that would have automatically created mental health teams throughout the state so that they could actually respond to people who are actually in mental health crisis. And I'm not saying that um, Jordan Neely was, because everyone is, you know, has deputized themselves to be like police police in public, but they have also deputized themselves as psychologists. They are not psychologists. They are other commuters, and they do not have the right to diagnose anybody in the subway. Leave that to, to the professionals. And those professionals are not police officers. I want to thank you both for being with us and ask you to stay with us, because we're going to do a post-show interview. We're going to post online at democracynow.org. Jawanza Williams, director of organizing at Vocal New York, and Lorenzo Larocque, who knew Jordan Neely for 20 years, as they are both street performers on the street and in the New York City subway system. Uh, you can go to democracynow.org for that part two, as well as the part two of the conversation with the anti-death penalty activist sister Helen Pers Jean talking about the case of Richard Glossop and so much more. Democracy Now! is produced with Renee Faust, Mike Burke, Dina Guster, Messiah Rhodes, Nermeen Sheikh, Maria Tarasena, Tammy Warren, Afterina Nadura, Sam Alcoff, Tamari Astudio, John Hamilton, Robbie Karen, Hani Masood, Sanji Lopez. Our executive director is Julie Crosby. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.